Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Who was Wilhelm Reich? What is organomy? Origonomy, I hope I'm pronouncing that. What does it all have to do with the paranormal? Hello and welcome to the, as soon as I get my script handed oh, to me, <laughs> welcome to the, the, oh, you know how it is, uh, well, so welcome to the 733rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on ON 1240 Radio in our 10th year on the air. I'm Ben and those deep questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and father, Paul. And uh, today we bring you a distinguished guest on many questions that probe the depths of paranormal research. And we welcome your calls. Numbers are 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, or 401-766-1240 locally or from anywhere else. Peter Robbins is an investigative writer specializing in the subject of UFOs. He has more than 35 years experience as a writer, researcher, investigator, lecturer, and author. Peter is a fixture on radio shows in the U.S. and in the U.K., and he has appeared as a guest on and been consultant to numerous television programs and documentaries. Peter has been a guest on this show many times over the years, and I believe he's been a panelist on every on-location broadcast we've ever done from the annual UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire, and the Greater New England UFO Conference in Leominster, Massachusetts. Peter was lectured all over the world on UFOs and on Dr. Wilhelm Reich, who is our subject for today. Peter's website, PeterRobbinsNY.com. That's Peter Robbins with two B's, NY as in New York, dot com. Alrighty, so Peter Robbins, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, it's wonderful to be returning to your show. Oh, well, it's, <laughs> it's wonderful to have you on this, this eventful day. So, I have to we say, oh, just a cutaway uh, of hearing... Uh, old-fashioned radio jingle almost brought tears to my eyes. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell that uh, you and I are almost the same vintage, I think. You know, <laughs> yes, Exactly. <clears throat> so sadly, we only have an hour, Peter. Uh, so, yeah. So please uh, introduce us to uh, Wilhelm Reich, uh, his work, and what led him to UFO research and what his conclusions were. Yeah, 25 words or less, please. Exactly. <laughs> uh, as I uh, joked with you in an email the other day, uh, uh, an introductory lecture that really did justice to the subject would run about three weeks <laughs> with very few breaks. Um, but to start with, um, uh, Wilhelm Reich developed a science which he named organomy. Uh, it is very simply the study of how energy functions in the living and non-living realms of nature. Organomy um, offers groundbreaking applications in, in fields as diverse as biology, uh, psychology, meteorology, sociology, cancer research, human sexuality, child-rearing, political science, and UFO studies. But some of its key findings challenge accepted physical laws, and by extension, some of society's most significant social and moral underpinnings. And for many people, while Reich was alive, uh, and even in the present, he passed in uh, 1957, this was and remains really quite unforgivable. Um, a capsule biography uh, uh, is um, challenging, but here goes. Um, Reich was born in uh, the old Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1897. His father uh, was a stern government bureaucrat, his mother a piano teacher. Uh, he and his brother Robert grew up on the family's rural estate. And like many uh, young people who grow up in natural surroundings, he observed natural functioning firsthand and on a daily basis. That would cover everything from 
you know, watching a bug die to animals having sex to plants growing. Uh, he was half Jewish, half Christian, uh, but very much an agnostic and saw religion, organized religion, more as a source of ignorance and suffering uh, used to control people, which, uh, uh, you know, immediately makes him an enemy of, of many people of faith. Everything moved along fairly well in his life uh, until a personal crisis uh, transformed him. Um, his parents were not in a terribly uh, happy marriage, and at the age of 17, he walked in on his mother accidentally uh, in flagrato uh, with her lover and <clears throat> was so troubled by it that he ended up telling his father who, of course, reacted uh, in a very cold and cut-off manner to the mother, who was so uh, humiliated, upset, uh, devastated that she committed suicide. His father, shortly thereafter, I'm sure informed by a certain amount of guilt, uh, basically allowed himself to stand out in a rainstorm, catch pneumonia, and die. So he had a very real understanding of human suffering, and the way that human sexuality uh, basically can blow back in a, in a very negative way in people's lives. All this was literally blown away in 1914 as the Balkans erupted into World War I, which swept the empire and the family's estate into oblivion. Uh, Reich served with distinction. He's an artillery officer in the Austro-Hungarian Army until the war's end and returned to his home to find he had no home. It was gone. There was no money um, and no property. He was brilliant. He was, again, fascinated by nature and decided he wanted to be a doctor and made his way to Vienna, where he supported himself completely in medical school by tutoring other students. I, I We can only imagine what it must have been like to uh, uh, be a student, uh, especially a medical student in Vienna, in the early 20s, um, and the main uh, interest for so many people was the uh, growing uh, fascination with the work of Dr. Sigmund Freud, who was literally creating the world of psychoanalysis with a small group of uh, uh, medical personnel. Reich presented himself very simply to Freud. Uh, Freud was very impressed by his intelligence and perception, and Reich very quickly moved into the role of a very close assistant to Freud and worked by his side right until uh, the late 20s. Um, he parted ways with Freud based on um, a disagreement <clears throat> that was rooted in human sexuality. Um, in 1929, he approached the famous psychoanalyst and observed that um, with the patients that he had worked with in the manner Freud had trained him in, um, unlike Freud, who felt that most, many if not most, uh, neuroses and uh, psychopathies and uh, human problems are rooted in sexuality, Reich felt that literally all of them were, uh, even if they were under the guise of uh, a business or, or social aspect. And this was a, a bit too much for Freud and his immediate followers. Uh, this was very, um, still almost Victorian uh, Vienna, and it did not feel appropriate to take the side. And so he left to go out on his own. This is where the myth of his insanity began, 
And it started, uh, not surprisingly, with uh, quiet bad-mouthing and rumor-mongering by those closest to Freud. Their um, proof, their their uh, reasoning uh, behind taking this view was right-left Freud. You know, that's nuts. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this was also at a time when uh, many idealistic people were hopeful that the great Soviet experiment in scientific socialism, as it was called at the time, i.e., hardcore communist uh, communism, um, maybe did hold uh, hope for people at large. And the communists in uh, Germany and uh, Austria into Russia uh, invited him to uh, set up a series of clinics uh, specifically to work with workers, uh, primarily couples, uh, with the thought that if they could... um, you know, work out their their personal problems, their relationship problems, their problems with their own sexuality, because here we're talking about individuals who overall were uneducated, still uh, had been reared in uh, the uh, Russian Orthodox tradition with a great deal of guilt around sexuality, <clears throat> that it would make them better and more productive workers. Unfortunately, uh, that experiment blew up in the face of the communists, because in literally every case where Reich was, in working with couples, able to restore what he termed uh, a meaningful sexual equilibrium. Um, their primary passion, purpose, function in life was not to, uh, you know, hit their quota numbers in the factory, but their personal loving reality at home. Uh, this was uh, very bourgeoisie and Reich was um, thrown out. Uh, He was never actually a member of the party, but from that point on, he realized that, you know, the communists on a certain level uh, were certainly not going to solve this problem, and he was an avowed anti-communist for the rest of his life. Um, By 1933, he was practicing uh, a method of his own developing in working with people in Austria. Uh, it was at a time of tremendous social upheaval, uh, riots in the streets over bread and uh, very basic rights. He observed out of his office window um, a profound uh, observation, I think, of a, um, a peaceful demonstration where the police were called in and immediately started clubbing, uh, clubbing these unarmed um, workers um, to the ground you know, blood flying. Uh, What troubled him the most, besides the obvious, was wherever he looked and could see the face of a police officer banging away uh, with a club on, you know, some poor person on the ground, their faces were expressionless. There was no connect between the reality of what they were doing and uh, the impact... um, you know, on their psyche, their own selves. They they were completely cut off. In 1933, Hitler consolidated power, and I think three days before that, he was able to slip through the borders and make his way to Norway, uh, being half Jewish, and also uh, by that time, having written about and identified both Hitler and Stalin as ultimate fascists, but in different directions. Uh, we usually apply the term fascism to the right, 
but Reich termed those two political movements red and black fascism. Same result, controlling the masses, uh, the elite taking power, a certain amount of sadism, um, with very different uh, styles and appearances. Um, the Nazis, of course, you could see coming a mile away. Uh, rigid body movements, uh, highly fetishized uniforms and all kinds of, you know, rigmarole. Um, the communist leaders taking the appearance of the workers, often dressing in the manner of workers, made most famous many years later by Mao Zedong, uh, and I guess Stalin before that, uh, but equally as insidious in a different direction. In Norway, he began focusing in on what he was beginning to learn about uh, human emotional holding. And what he observed was that traumatic memories are literally trapped in the musculature. That um, a classic example might be, you know, you're a happy child playing in front of your house with your lovely little puppy. It hears a noise, runs into the street, and you watch it be smushed by a car. Um, in that moment, there's a tremendous contraction. Uh, uh, shock, of course. But in many cases, the memory um, really becomes part of the contraction. And over time, it becomes chronic and not identified. The result of that in most human beings would be uh, more shallow breathing, um, a sense of resignation with life. I mean, who's really happy? Whose sex life is really ecstatic? I guess I can just get by... Uh, that is really the death knell for a living, striving organism. And uh, he began to see that um, he could replicate in certain experiments the same kind of shock and withholding. One of his most elegant and dramatic experiments, and very um, precisely practiced, was working under a magnifying uh, uh, microscope, <clears throat> but only at about 50 power isolating in on a particularly large amoeba and working with a, a very small tweezer which held a micro shard of glass. He would come in and gently poke an amoeba. This thing up until that moment is a pseudopod. It's, you know, it's ha happening. It's, you know, just moving around. It's sending out uh, appendages, bringing them back. The amoeba would contract into a circle. And a certain amount of time would pass before he, uh, the amoeba began once again to explore its world. At that point, he repeated the procedure. This time, the amoeba took much longer to, you know, I guess, trust its environment and start to uh, function naturally again. After three or four times, the amoeba would become, you know, a circular uh, organism the membrane would harden and the amoeba would die. Reich's extremely short and very precise definition of life, which I have always held very dear, dispassionate as it is, is pulsation within a membrane. That little shard of glass poking that amoeba and the results is what's wrong with so many people in the world today and by extension the societies they live in. He also began to research into certain kinds of cancer. We all know that there are cancers that are hereditary and other ones that are environmentally um, uh, caused. But there are other ones that are based on emotional resignation, uh, 
tremendous um, sadness, inability to function in the world because of uh, profound early disappointments. And what he found was that by using a combination of mirroring the person's face, uh, Freud was very famous. Uh, even anybody that's not studied him knows the caricature of a Freudian analytic session. You've got your patient on the chaise lounge staring out into space with the therapist always positioning their chair just out of the peripheral vision of the patient. How did that form evolve? It evolved, we learn, from the Freud archives uh, because Freud was decidedly uncomfortable staring into his patient's eyes. Reich literally turned around the chair and not only stared at his patient straight throughout the therapy, but <clears throat> as the expressions on their face would change, often, you know, with a look of kind of pity me, I'm such a miserable character, he would give no quarter. He mirrored their expressions, uh, causing the patient often to move more and more toward the real reason um, for their misery. And working, again, with a combination of that and certain kinds of intermuscular um, work, uh, in a way the entire human potential movement uh, owes like a huge debt as its godfather and things like rolfing and um, uh, technique and other, you know, deep tissue massage uh, techniques are rooted in Reich's original work. The point being that by these processes and with kicking and with screaming, um, there came times where that contraction that had been held in place unconsciously for years would break through and the memory would return and then it could be discussed and then moved beyond. Ironically, um, in working with cancer patients, he actually was able to reduce the size of certain tumors. Overall, though, um, they might be um, sloughed off into the kidney where they would clog the uh, organ and they would die of renal failure. But the experiments are important in what they proved. Uh, the Norwegian press, sadly, uh, not, um, well, it was the first time, but it followed him for the rest of his life, not understanding what he was about and not studying the work and not really interested in anything but that it was all about sex with him and, you know, obviously he was some kind of uh, deviate, uh, set up a, a very vicious campaign in the Norwegian press <clears throat> at about the time <clears throat> in 1939 when Dr. Reich received uh, an invitation from the New School for Social Research, a uh, wonderful institution in New York City that still thrives, to come to America and teach there. And so he emigrated to America. Uh, he set up his office in um, Forest Hills, Queens, a fairly rural um, uh, borough of, of Manhattan at the time, uh, I was born very close by, no connection there, though, um, and continued to develop his therapeutic techniques. Um, by this time, his interests were beginning to be more focused on how energy functions out there in other areas of natural uh, functioning and a certain sad understanding that no matter how much therapy um, an adult received, it had the potential of helping them, but in Reich's words, you can't straighten out a bent tree. And so he began to focus on the health of infants, 
which in part relied on the health, the emotional health of their mothers. Then no way did that mean you had to be, you know, highly educated. It mean you had to understand the incredible impact uh, that your behavior had around your baby. Um, screaming at a child out of frustration, um, out of misery in your own life, can produce the kind of contractions that would then become chronic and set in and make for essentially a person with a crippled psyche um, whose entire muscular structure was bent on holding in place uh, their sadness, their misery, their pain. At this point again, he moved on. And when I gave those very different subjects as examples of things that organomy uh, has given me great insight into and can help us understand better, it seems like he was all over the place. I mean, you know, he, he couldn't make up his mind where he wanted to go, what he was doing. But when you study the work, this more than 35 years of focused scientific development study uh, and discoveries, you see that it's as straight as a gun sight and that everything makes sense in leading into the next thing. It was while he was in New York that he developed a very simple apparatus, uh, which he called the Orgone Energy Accumulator. Um, the rather uh, derogatory slang is the Orgone Box, uh, which is a, a term I find objectionable, but people use it, and uh, uh, not with the viciousness, they just don't know better. Orgone Energy was essentially the energy, um, the Hindus called it the prana, the Victorians the ether. It is the energy that animates us, the space between us, and everything around us. And the device was made so simply that it was wholesale rejected by uh, the scientific community at large without replicating his experiments because it, the mantra of... of UFO deniers, and there are so many parallels <clears throat> in the ridicule factor. Um, I can't think, in fact, of another area of study um, where you can draw so many uh, of the same lines um, as you can between uh, the public's sense of organomy uh, and the scientific communities and the reality of UFOs and the way it's perceived in the public and the mind of uh, official science, so to say. Um, the device is... Um, traditionally, uh, for a human being, about the size of an old-fashioned phone booth. Um, but I built, uh, I built smaller experimental models for seed germination and that kind of thing that are not much bigger than a shoebox. The principle here is that it is made up of layers of organic and inorganic material. And the more layers, the more folds, and they are always... Um, uh, one after the other, organic, inorganic, organic, inorganic, um, the higher energetic potential the accumulator can produce. How does it work? Very simply, organic material attracts energy. Inorganic material reflects it. And so the experience of sitting in an accumulator, um, if you're not, you know, a totally armored uh, person, um, you know, like a phallic kind of tough guy with big muscles who is cut off from their feelings completely, as opposed to, you know, like most of us, a regulation-issued character neurotic, that you begin <laughs> to feel uh, a tingling on your skin, um, a increased sensation of your immediate atmosphere. If it is completely dark 
and most of them are cut uh, with a door, uh, often with a opening about you know eye level, and sometimes openings at the bottom and the top of the door to allow for air circulation. But if you use it in a dark room, um, your eyes begin to perceive what Reich termed spinning waves. Okay, we'll have to stop it there, Peter. We have to take our bottom of the hour break. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) We'll come right back to that, uh, the touch final touchdown during the commercial. And you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley with our amazing guest, Peter Robbins. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Frank Presence, and I'm host of It's Your Business. Mondays at 2 p.m., we'll explore everything that's involved in business in this community. But you know what? Everything is about business. Tune in on Mondays here on ON Radio. Well, that was a short break, wasn't it, Ben? I told you. Okay. I told you it was short. <laughs> there we go. It is Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley in our 10th year on the air. And... um a, I suppose, the, at least a tenth appearance on this show by our good friend Peter Robbins. <laughs> Peter, uh, pick up where you left off. It, it's, it's sounding like uh, Wilhelm Reich oh, yeah. was a, a sort of psychology's answer to Nikola Tesla. Well, um, he was um, a word that is so overused in, in our culture. Um, he was a millennial genius. Mm. And um, he was so far ahead of his time in so many ways especially in, again, the psychosocial, sexual perception of the way that the world functions, uh, a world primarily made up of guilty people whose um, relationship with their own sexuality is colored by, uh, you know, um, often not the most open um, uh, take on society and uh, and carrying around a certain amount of either um, secular or religious guilt. to jump back in, though... Um, yeah, and we want to get into his interest in UFOs. Yes, of course. And I told you this would be a challenge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> come back for another ten shows and... You, you can handle UFO it. You thing. can handle it. <laughs> no, I, I'll move along as, as lively as I can. Um, he called this phenomenon spinning waves, and it was literally countless little specks of light that spun in corkscrews for a second and then were gone. Um, one has an opportunity to observe this in a normal setting as well, and most of us do as children. But if we report the phenomena to our parents, it's, oh, dear, well, you know, you just think you saw that, but, you know, it's just the sky and it's just flat blue or, you know, white or whatever. Uh, namely, if you uh, find a nice day, and I understand we're going to have some coming at us in a few months, um, <laughs> lie down on your back on the grass and look up at a blue sky, relax your eyes, and just look. What you will see whether or not um, you identify it as such, is countless specks of movement. Um, I remember uh, one scientific explanation mechanically uh, called it uh, a phenomenon called Brownian movement, um, or just, you know, your own little fantasies that the sky is moving. But indeed, we're surrounded by energy, and that's a manifestation of it. He was so um, uh, impressed by this phenomenon um, he tried. He figured out a way to calibrate it in a laboratory situation using a special vacuum tube uh, that he had developed in part that um, glowed uh, a natural blue uh, under these conditions, um, blue being the color of um, pure energy, uh, which is really why the sky is blue, although uh, that is not an accepted uh, explanation. 
And in January of 1913, uh, January 13th, uh, 1941, he um, sent a letter, a very carefully worded, I'm sorry, just before that, uh, early January 1941, he sent a very carefully worded letter to Dr. Albert Einstein at Princeton University describing the experiments and saying that this was something that the best-known physicist of the world had to see for himself. Einstein responded six days later and invited Reich to Princeton, where Reich performed the experiment for Einstein, who reacted by saying if it was true, it would be a bomb in physics, and asked to borrow the laboratory equipment to replicate the experiments on his own. He did. He got the same results, was terribly excited about it, and then a uh, assistant of his pointed out a, um, a possible explanation, which was that the uh, orgone energy accumulator, and uh, what they were looking at was a temperature differential between the inside of the accumulator and the inside of a test box, that it might be caused by wind currents or, uh, you know, sitting the thing on the ground or in the air. It was a BS explanation. But Einstein, as we now know, was being drawn further into the top-secret work uh, that was involved in his part in the Manhattan Project, very much under the scrutiny of the FBI, and refused to correspond with um, Reich further, which was a tremendous upset to the scientist. Mm. Uh, he continued to write him. Uh, assistants wrote back, then Reich's assistants wrote, and it forms an extraordinary correspondence of almost 100 pages, which is termed the Einstein Affair and which is available from the uh, bookstore of the Wilhelm Reich Museum in Rangeley, Maine. Anyway, um, he moved on in his work and, again, toward the end of the 40s, realized that um, he needed a natural setting to continue his work in. His attention was now being turned to how storms form, how weather systems interact, how planets uh, form, and ultimately how star systems form and are destroyed. And the same formula that he developed watching how a paramecium uh, naturally splits into two, what happens when two people make love, what happens when a you know, high uh, pressure and a low pressure front merge and become a storm, um, was the same thing that was behind how a star system forms, and it was very simple. It's this. Tension, charge, discharge, relaxation. You can apply it in any of those ways. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, in the world of human sexuality, that does not mean having more sex or more partners is going to get you to that point. It means that you have to have the courage, um, the goodwill, um, the willingness to be completely vulnerable in the arms of a loving partner that you're attracted to, to let go to the degree that you can go into reflexive unconsciousness, i.e. a full orgasm, and discharge all that excess energy. Um, again, these theories were um, considered reprehensible to a lot of people because it all involved SEX and kind of icky. Um, anyway, he found a beautiful property um, in southern Maine, just uh, outside of the lovely town of Rangeley, beautiful where place. he um, purchased a, a 
nice piece of property, built an extraordinary combination home, laboratory, observatory, studio, developed a number of outbuildings, and one of the first major devices that came out of this, um, ironically, started as um, trying to figure out a way to deal with nuclear fallout. In the early 50s, it obsessed the scientific community because the odds were, sooner or later, we and the Soviets were going to go to war, and was there any way to affect this? Um, the experiment got derailed in the most interesting way possible, namely that the device that he developed, um, which he called a cloud buster, was also um, as simple in its own way as the orgone energy accumulator, uh, but it produced the effect in the atmosphere of grounding the stale atmosphere that you would find in a drought condition and moving atmosphere over that area, in this case, drawing with the cloud buster from the east, Atlantic Ocean being very close by, and raising the relative um, humidity index in the air to such a degree that he broke a drought in southern Maine. Um, that was absolutely documented. You could put a compass point into Rangeley, spin it around you know, 25 miles or so, and see that over that period of time, the humidity index re uh, rising, rain coming, and um, from there, um, more interest in, in the viability of the subject. However, as he experimented with the device in the early 50s, much to his shock, that of the people of the town of Rangeley and all of his associates working with him, UFOs began to come in over the property. Uh, Reich, who had never manifested any interest in the subject, even though he was certainly alive well and working uh, at the time um, of the birth of the modern age of UFOs, um, never paid attention to it. There's no written or anecdotal record, um, but in 1953, um, Several friends who were staying with him observed strange lights over the area and reported them to him. Um, he, being an always inquisitive individual, open to any possibilities, um, read um, Donald Kehoe's Flying Sausage from Outer Space. Then he read Ed J. Rupelt, uh, for the head of Blue Book, at, uh, had just retired as the head of Project Blue Book at the time, report on UFOs. Um, and got it. Um, his observations, even early on, uh, I think are spot on. Quote, I had not studied anything on the subject. I knew practically nothing about it. But my mind, used to exploring, uh, expecting surprises in natural research, was open to anything that seemed real. Then an even more uh, telling observation um, after reading um, a report on UFOs. The Rupelt report on UFOs clearly reveals the helplessness of mechanistic method in coming to grips with problems posed by the spacemen. The cosmic orgone energy which these living beings are using in their technology is beyond the grasp of mechanistic science, since cosmic laws of functioning are not mechanical, but what I term functional. The helplessness of mechanical thinking appears in the tragic shortcoming of our fastest fighter jets to make and hold contact with UFOs. And then, 
being unavoidably uh, outdistanced is not a flattering situation for military pride. The conclusions seem correct. Mechanistic methods of locomotion must be counted out in coping with the spaceman problem. He continued to study the uh, UFO phenomena as he continued to um, field test the um, um, the Cloudbuster. <clears throat> and by 1954, he realized that um, in order to prove to the world the uh, extraordinary powers of this machine, um, he needed to field test it in a, in, a, in a place where the results would be unquestioned. How did the Cloudbuster, how do they work? Um, I've seen them work, and it's one of the most memorable experiences of my life. Hmm. Essentially, you have a series of long pipes over and under, uh, often looking a bit like an anti-aircraft gun, but not shooting anything, simply pipes. At the back end of the pipes, and they're often mounted on an apparatus uh, on a trailer or on the back of um, uh, a pickup truck, uh, in his case, on the back of them, he attached long lengths of industrial BX cable. That's the big version of that snaky cable that goes through our house with the wires pulled out and put the back end of the wires in a, a river, a lake, a well, or any kind of moving water. Water is a natural energetic attractor. And when the pipes were aimed at the sky, they would produce the result of drawing down the atmosphere, literally, and as such, creating movement. Um, once again, he was establishing this as he went along. And in all the experiments, drawing, uh, in Maine, drawing from an easterly, flat-out direction and raising the pipe pipes every day by calibrations until, once again, the relative humidity index in the air was such that rain was produced. He and his colleagues began to study a map of the United States to establish um, what was the driest area in the United States, because if they could make it rain there with this apparatus in an area where it had not rained in decades, say, um, the formal scientific community might pay attention, and the potential for cloud-busting technology, especially today, could green the deserts, and I'm not exaggerating, um, and help to help us heal our planet. Um, they established, not surprisingly, that the uh, driest area in the United States was in Death Valley. But for a number of reasons, uh, all of them practical, it was not um, the place that they could work. The second most area was a area outside of Tucson, Arizona, where it had rained, I think, five inches in 50 years. <laughs> he, he leased a property out there of several acres, and he and colleagues drove two cloudbusters on trailers out to Arizona and in October of 1954, set up shop, and began a drawing operation, this time from a westerly direction. Several hundred miles away, of course, is the Pacific Ocean. Over the next weeks, they watched the temperature, uh, the <laughs> relative humidity rise, even to going beyond points that had ever been recorded in Arizona. And UFO activity over the area began almost immediately. 
This was not some mystical nonsense made up by those involved. It was observed by residents of Tucson, Arizona, and in the papers, as was interest, especially among uh, farmers in the area, in the potential for Reich's work. Um, what transpired there was nothing short, ultimately, of a battle. And um, to describe all of the events that occurred in Tucson, uh, outside of Tucson, um, would require, at best, at least another show. But safe to say that after training the Cloudbuster, uh, their Cloudbusters on these objects, which he had first um, taken a chance with in Maine, the objects would always move out of the direct um, uh, aim of the Cloudbuster pipes, or they would fade, or they would wobble, or they would disappear. It happened repeatedly. It was scientifically recorded not just by Reich, but by the scientists who were with him. Um, by um, October, November, um, the the other thing was that when the UFOs would appear, the um, moisture content in the air would drop again. His logical deduction, although um, it is a deduction, was that there was something about the technology of these devices uh, that perhaps put out a byproduct, the equivalent of an automobile putting out carbon monoxide, that um, mm. killed um, the potential for uh, a higher level of moisture in the air. Um, ultimately, though, they not only made it rain, but they broke every weather record in the history of Arizona, I believe to this date, um, a week, two weeks before it began to rain, they could see greening on the mountains in the distance where nobody had seen green in decades. Um, for me, small details are sometimes the most dramatic. And a week before, days before, um, it actually began to rain. Remember, they're working on a stretch of least desert outside of Tucson. Dormant, long dormant grass seeds in the sand began to spontaneously sprout and grass was growing around the sites of the two cloudbusters by the time it did rain. Uh, however, nothing prepared them for the results. Um, it snowed on Christmas that year <laughs> for the first time in memory at the Tucson airport hmm. and there were flash floods in areas where people had actually built their houses in um you know, drainage areas that had not seen water for 50 years, and they were flooded out. Um, to tie it all up, because, of course, we're flying through this hour, at this time, um, a real problem occurred. The FDA had been trying to bring down Reich in the worst way since 1947, based on the specious attacks in uh, American media. When that very first article appeared, um, Reich made a very calculated mistake. He did not take the writer to task uh, and sue them for defamation of character. And so major media, Time, Newsweek, etc., each had their own wink-wink, nudge-nudge um, take on, you know, his sex work and his weather work and uh, all that stuff. And um, the FDA, which was essentially run, um, much as it is now to a degree, um, by to use a, a very basic word, thugs, 
who really were more interested in uh, purient cracking down on, uh, uh, you know, what they considered immoral activity, knew, quote-unquote, that his devices were all quackery. I mean, how could they not be? They didn't plug into anything. They didn't run on any kind of engine. And in all those years, um, eight, nine years, they spent half a million dollars, a lot of money at the time, but could not get a single one of his patients or past patients or patients of any of the therapists that he had trained to complain to them or to anyone else. However, they were able, and rightly so, to establish that uh, accumulators um, were um, experimental medical devices, and as such, um, they were not allowed to be shipped interstate. And very sadly, uh, one of Reich's most brilliant uh, followers, um, Professor uh, Dr. Michael Silver, um, without thinking, inadvertently shipped um, the manufactured panels to put together an accumulator from Maine to New York, and the FDA had them. Uh, Reich was in um, um, Arizona at the time and decided to return immediately um, to take full responsibility himself and absolve Silbert of any. Silbert riddled with guilt, committed suicide years later. Tragic story. Um, but he naively and idealistically decided that if he were taken to court for this um, misdemeanor, um, he would use that opportunity to present the history of his science and its value to the world, and things would change. He was advised not to by the people closest to him, and I'm old enough to uh, have met many of them uh, back in the day. Um, and he lost the case, and the judge would hear none of it. It was some very dark doings. His former lawyer was now the prosecutor working against him. Um, the judge was an old friend of the woman who had written the first specious article about him in 1947. Awful stuff. He was convicted. He went to Allenwood State Prison in um, Pennsylvania and was found dead in his cell 10 days to a week before he was scheduled to be released on parole. Dr. Ellsworth F. Baker, uh, Reich's first assistant for the 11 uh, last years of his life and my therapist for almost seven years, who visited Reich regularly, told me he had a chance to really study the manuscript of what would have been Reich's uh, final book, and that it was brilliant, even dealing with anti-gravity equations and energetic functioning on a level that he had not even at that time come to. Not surprisingly, that uh, manuscript was missing um, from his cell and is probably locked in the same vault as the material taken out of Nikola Tesla's uh, yeah. uh, room mm -hmm. at the Hotel New Yorker. Um, Peter, I'll have to away. kind of slow you down here because we're, we're going to have to do another couple of shows on this. But yeah, one well, very basically, quick question. That is, that is the very compressed story, leaving out a lot of detail. Okay. Uh, very quick question. You, uh, One of your many fields of expertise is the Rendlesham Forest incident of 1980. Uh, we've mm -hmm. studied that, too. Yes. And uh, the, the UFO is uh, in, very, very well attested, etc. We have heard that there was a cloudbuster device at... RAF Bentwaters. Is that true to your best of your knowledge? To the best of my knowledge, it still is. And I say still is because, as many of your listeners know, um, the book that I worked so hard for almost a decade to co-author on the subject um, was um, appropriately caught up in a major scandal last year. And I am sorry to report 
that um, the reason was because my co-author, somebody who I uh, believed, thought I had investigated as fully as necessary, um, has turned out to um, be somebody who played fast and loose with the truth in many respects to such a degree that I can't even tell you certain things that were true or not that appear in that book. Mm -hmm. When I um, fully realized this last year, uh, after some months of deer in the headlight, um, shock, embarrassment, um, depression, uh, I wrote a long paper on it, which is now posted on the front page of my website, which I encourage your readers to, uh, your listeners to read. Yeah, dot com. right? Yeah. But um, the Cloudbuster aspect I continue to take seriously, not just, uh, if it was just my former co-author who had given me the account of seeing one there, I would have dismissed it at this point very likely. However... I was able to establish that other independent military witnesses also saw one. However, the one that was observed there was scaled up beyond anything that Reich had ever imagined, I imagine, suggested or built. Painted um, olive drab and right off the main runway in an area uh, where there are wells regularly spaced throughout the area. I've seen them. after I published, um, a colleague, probably uh, uh, one of the best sources for any of your listeners interested in more information on cloud busting, Dr. James DeMeo, who runs the uh, Orgone Biophysical Research Laboratory just outside of beautiful Ashland, Oregon. You can Google it under the name of O-B-R-L or Green Springs Lab, um, confided to me, and then we made it public, that... Um, uh, He had similar reports, um, but from a a military installation in what we used to call West Germany. The upshot of all this was um, in October of 1987, uh, more than seven years after the Rendlesham incident when I first visited the area. um, Several months before... uh, well, I visited in February of 88. Um, in October of that year, there was a storm that hit that Bent Waters Woodbridge area that was without precedent. Um, yeah, we, we were know, still talking uh, about it when we were there. Yeah, yeah. The the stats that I'm going to um, quote from are, are, are not from any UFO source, but from uh, the British Forestry Service. Um, within several hours, 1.3 mature evergreen trees were brought down. Some of them snapped. Um, I saw a historic grove of holly trees, um, some of them over 500 years old, that were split open uh, with trunks that were like a meter across, snapped. Um, This was not natural, was the uh, sense that I got from everybody that I interviewed. And whether or not um, the Air Force, which Reich had kept informed of all of his weather modification work, of all of his UFO observations, um, along with the office of the president. Again, he was an immigrant who loved his country more um, than many of us who were born here because he appreciated Peter, I'm going to have to stop you. We're just out of time. And, yeah. Uh, but we'll, we've started. We'll have to finish as soon as we <laughs> Exactly. We'll be in touch off there. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. And um, uh, great hearing both of your voices. And uh, a big hug to you both. Thank you. We'll see Thank you, you soon. You bet. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye. All right. Well, so what's uh, what's going on there, Ben? 
Oh, we've got plenty going on. Uh, so plan to meet us on uh, May 26th and 27th at the Saucer Symposium at the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies in Stratham, New Hampshire. And um, there will be some uh, great speakers, including Shane Searway, Andy Kitt, and uh, many others you've heard on this show. And uh, this is the fourth year in a row we've spoken there. And uh, we'll present a, uh, some new material on our flap area cases, and we'll also do our second annual live broadcast from there on the 27th with a panel of speakers. So watch for more information as the dates approach. Okay. Uh, it's not too early to mention that on Saturday, July 21st, uh, which is not that far away, we'll be back at the Danbury Public Library in Connecticut to present a program on Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of based on our 2017 book of the same subtitle. And also uh, on Labor Day... Uh uh, weekend in September, which also isn't too far away. Uh, no, we, not really. No, not at all. We'll, we'll be back up the Exeter UFO Festival in uh, New Hampshire. That's in Exeter, New Hampshire, of course. And on Columbus Day weekend in October, we'll once again be at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts. And uh, Peter Robbins will be, uh, I know he'll be in Exeter. I'm not sure about Lemonster, but he'll be around. <laughs> so oh, of course. Hear him if you can. Um, and again, uh, we bring up our website, uh, the show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can buy our books, and uh, we will autograph them for you if you do that. Uh, also, there are over 750 hours of shows uh, from our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio and here on WO1240. Uh, and we invite you to, if you have the time, check those out. There's a lot of material on the Rendlesham Forest case that came up in today's discussion. Uh, there's some special shows on that. And um, check it out. It's uh, Take your time, and you can get through them all. Uh, our books, of course, uh, the most recent ones, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know Was Wrong, published in 2016, and Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Martha, Man, and Monsters You Never Heard Of, all available there or in stores or wherever. Quick, get to the quote while we still have time. Okay. All right. I got... Um, I don't, maybe we don't have time. Uh, no, anyway, this is a good try. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.